I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Sarab Amari, co-founder of the online magazine Compact, joins me to discuss his new book, Tyranny, Inc., How Private Power Crushed American Liberty and What to Do About It. Given that Amari is a self-described man of the right, one could be forgiven for assuming that Tyranny, Inc. would be just another addition in a growing cottage industry of conservative diatribes about woke capitalism. Amari, however, defies those expectations, instead offering a searing journalistic expose of corporate power and neoliberal capitalism in America. The book has been receiving a great deal of buzz, with many on the right giving it a less-than-favorable reception, while others on the left and center-left are receiving it more warmly, with some even viewing it as Amari leaving behind his right-wing orientation. Sarab, however, begs to differ on that. He still considers himself a man of the right, and to be sure, Amari and I, indeed, have a lot of differences politically. For example, I don't think we would agree on issues related to the LGBTQ community. However, I think that Tyranny, Inc. is an important book, regardless of your political orientation. Moreover, I respect a lot of other issues Amari has covered, such as the Azerbaijani regime's oppression of Armenia, and his principled, Catholic-driven opposition to the racist, eugenicist, and social Darwinist right. 
We'll be speaking a little bit more about that in the latter portion of the conversation to follow. And with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Sarab Amari, author of Tyranny Inc. How Private Power Crushed American Liberty and What to Do About It. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I think has managed to ruffle the feathers over the years of, you know, leftists, free market fundamentalists, uh, sort of centrist liberals, and now even, you know, the sort of unseemly, I would call them post-Christian racist right. Sarab Amari is the author of Tyranny, Inc., How Private Power Crushed American Liberty and What to Do About It. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. So, Sarab, maybe to start, we could talk about why you called the book Tyranny, Inc., because I have to say I was surprised. I initially went into this book, as many other leftists have, thinking, oh, this is going to be, uh, you know, another, you know, conservative book about woke capitalism and complaining about woke capitalism. But it turns out you have taken a very different approach. Could you talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so... I, I should begin at the beginning. This book was conceived on election night 2020, when, although the outcome wasn't clear and it wasn't clear yet that, that Trump had lost, one thing that was clear from the early ballots as they were coming in is that Trump had consolidated his support among um, white working class people. Um, so not only had he not lost those, but then he added to that group um, you know, major inroads among working class people of color. So we began by thinking, uh, okay, here we go. I'm going to propose to Random House, my publisher, a kind of manifesto for a working class conservatism or a working class GOP. Um, but then as I began to reflect on my on the experience of the previous four years and my own reporting for the book, it became clear to me that that's putting the, the cart before the horse um, in the sense that many of the obstacles to working class flourishing um, is very obvious, you know, come from the vast power of of corporations, of large businesses, small businesses, frankly, to be honest, um, and, and Wall Street to coerce ordinary people. And that the Republican Party doesn't really, even if in its Trumpian iteration, doesn't really have an answer to these problems. In some way, cases, even Trump exacerbated exacerbated them in in um uh in important ways that i document in the book um hence the title tyranny inc you know i mean americans are used to especially american conservatives are used to thinking of, of worrying about tyranny and rightly i mean the uh, in the classical and christian tradition tyranny is what you seek to avoid um but what they lose sight of is the fact that um government is not the only potential source of tyranny, that in fact, um, private actors can act like tyrants, and that potentially we are living in what I call a system of private tyranny, a sort of comprehensive system of coercion that we cannot challenge democratically and democratic give and take at the courts, etc., precisely because we're told that, well, that takes place in a private sphere and therefore is not subject to kind of public democratic contestation or legal justiciability. So that's the origins and thesis of the book. One of the issues you cover is the sort of liberty of contract argument that people will make where, 
oh, well, you, you, you choose to work for that firm. You can quit at any time. How do you sort of uh, tackle that sort of argument for the liberty of contract and the issues with it? So, okay, so the the classic liberty of contract theory is that employers and employees relationships are basically optimal and therefore should not be in most cases interfered with. Um, they're optimal because they have a kind of uh, the both parties, employer and worker, have a symmetrical right to walk away from each other. And so because they can walk away from each other, um, each can freely contract and each can freely get out of the work work contract. Um, and this may have been true for a brief period, possibly in the late 18th century before the rise of the Industrial Revolution, uh, which is when like these kinds of theories first began to be articulated by mainly sort of English and Scottish political economists. But ever since, and even then, by the way, even they sort of foresaw why maybe this idea wouldn't hold in many cases, uh, setting that aside, by the time the mid we got to the mid 19th century, you have the industrial revolution. You have, you know, typically most industries and the most advanced industries are highly concentrated. Um, you know, there's typically two or three dominant actors, and then you have many many employees going up against each other uh, as competitors for fewer jobs. And what that means is that the um, employer and employee don't meet each other at arm's length, that in fact, one is much more dependent on the other, that one has much more collect bargaining power against the other. And therefore, that the liberty of contract framework is a kind of um, legal fiction. But it's a fiction that was quite powerful in the United States, especially in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, when the Supreme Court struck down all sorts of pro-labor laws, most notably, uh, or most famously, laws against um, uh, lim laws limiting Baker's hours to 60 hours a week in New York State. The Supreme Court struck that down in a fate in a case called Lochner. And that whole era became known as the era of of the Lochner court in which the court upheld, um, as you know, uh, uh, JG, uh, they, it, it, it struck down all sorts of laws on the basis that they would interfere with the perfect kind of equilibrium of liberty of contract. The New Deal smashed the Lochner Court, and thank God for that. But unfortunately, what I argue and show in the book is that we're actually we've we're we've slid back in a sort of um, sinister and and uh, invisible way, largely invisible way, back into the days of Lochner. One thing I wanted to get into, and this will require me to give some background on myself. I know that you uh, sort of come from a background of being a former Trotskyite that became a man of the right. I actually have the exact opposite story. I started out on the right and moved to the left. And it's odd because the way that happened was I had started out sort of libertarian and then mm -hmm. started reading a publication that you've written for, The American Conservatives. And that's where I discovered critiques of libertarianism and the way that this sort of free market fundamentalism leads to the atomization of citizens within our society. And I guess what I wanted to talk about is that even as I've gone from right to left, the issue of atomization and you know its negative impacts on us is very important to me to this day. So could you talk a little bit about the issue of atomization as it relates to your book? Yeah, I mean, when we talk about atomization, I, um, I talk about a kind of wide 
range of social pathologies whose symptoms are uh, experienced as widespread loneliness among millennials. Millennials, one in five millennials reports that they have no friends. Um, it's the opioid crisis, it's the fentanyl crisis, collapsing family formation, collapsing rates of marriage, um, collapsing birth rates, collapsing participation in churches and civic activities, all the hallmarks that we associate with a kind of democratic, small d democratic civic health are on the wane. And every, everyone agrees about the symptoms. What I, um, I'm, and obviously, I, like I said, I, I began on the on the left and always retained something of a an appreciation for the left sense that material conditions um, have a bearing on the shape of our culture. So that to, to try to divorce the two, as conservatives typically do, is is foolish. Now, I no longer am a Trotskyite. I, 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 I don't believe in sort of bringing about a world revolution in which one class abolishes the other effectively. And you believe in a sort of class compromise. I'm a class compromise social democrat. Um, now, I happen to believe that that's actually a very conservative model. And there's a rich irony there because a lot of conservatives are attacking the book, um, not realizing the extent to which co the class compromise vision is actually a conservative one. And a lot of leftists are I mean, intelligent leftists, yeah, but some kind of glib center left types are celebrating the book as though like Sorab has left the right. That's not quite right, right either. Um, it's about like, recognizing that there's going to be social antagonism and friction, especially after the Industrial Revolution. Um, how do we ameliorate that so that, uh, you know, ordinary people make out better than they do under kind of extreme market systems, whether it's neoliberalism or the variety that prevailed in the in the 19th century. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, like my, my frustration with the right is the fact that they lament the right symptoms, uh, but then they don't look at the causes, they blinker themselves to the possibility that, that, you know, how we organize our political economy and class structure might have some connection with the fact that people are too harried to connect with each other to start families, to take care of their kids so their, their kids aren't distracted in school because they're under enormous kind of market stresses just to survive. Yeah, well, I mean, there's people working multiple jobs that because of the hours they're working, they can't even spend time with their kids. And my understanding is based on all the research that negatively impacts the children and their ability to prosper and succeed in life. I, I, absolutely. I mean, so I to make things a little bit less abstract, because we've been talking just almost purely on abstractions, when in fact, the book itself is mostly a, a work of journalism. It's not a, it's not an, it's not a treatise on political economy. Rather, I was going to say you did a very good job covering stories like uh, Bruce Miller and other Sears retail workers losing their jobs at the hands of a hedge fund. Exactly. So it's mostly a repertorial book. It's dr story driven. I try to tell I try, I try to paint a comprehensive picture of the way our political economy works through individual stories of ordinary Americans impacted by this kind of private tyranny. And one of the first ones I bring up is scheduling precarity and scheduling and wage precarity. They're different issues, but they're closely related. Scheduling precarity is has to do with, on, in the lower rungs of the labor market today, um, especially in the service and retail industries, which is like a tenth of the economy, if not more, maybe maybe approaching a fifth of the economy, um, employers 
have learned to shift all the costs associated with periods of low demand onto onto workers right so if you if you're a restaurant a chain restaurant and just regularly schedule your workers with give them ordinary schedules like 9 to 5 or whatever then both employer and employee equally bear the costs associated with periods of low demand right so there are times when people don't come into the restaurant and therefore the restaurant doesn't sell as any hamburgers and both in a way both the worker and and the employer both take a hit from that that's how it used to be but thanks to like algorithmic human resources scheduling and so forth restaurants and others like large retailers have learned to only schedule their workers for periods of high demand and then to either cancel shifts when demand doesn't materialize or to do what's called clopening shifts where the worker only comes in for like an hour after opening of the store and then in like the two hours approaching the closing of the shop and in between, they basically have to go home or whatever. That creates wage precarity, which means that um, there's never any sense of certainty about how, many, how much you're going to take home in terms of take-home pay. But it also creates scheduling precarity, which is that sense of uncertainty about your life. And I tell the story of this woman um, who faced this just as she had a child and you know she wanted to pick up more hours, but they weren't available. But at the same time, the hours that were available we're never ever, there's never any re- regularity, so she couldn't schedule childcare. This is time. Alicia Fleming, right? Correct. There's a woman named Alicia Fleming in Massachusetts. She could never quite like, but it's so typical. I mean, it, it, this is just one story among millions. She could never like have childcare lined up on such short notice, so therefore she couldn't um, uh, take the shifts that were available. And so that's that's a naked form of coercion, right? And it's it's one sided. It's perfectly legal on the employer's part. The employer isn't doing anything legal, isn't doing anything illegal. And frankly, I mean, um, Alicia had to stay in her job for a year and a half because, you know, anything else would have rocked the boat just when she's just had a baby. And so during that crucial developmental period for the for the son, for the baby, when you know, regular contact with mom is really important, but also wages are necessary to survive. The child had neither of those things. So, yeah, I mean, and and so, I mean, what, what are some other results of that? I'll, and I'll stop. I know I've been going on in this answer, but it also, wage precarity means that um, nearly half of Americans, according to the Federal Reserve, are unable to come up with $400 in cash to pay for an exigency. So if something comes up, they have to resort to either credit cards or like loan sharks, you know, those kind of lo- uh, payday lenders uh, or for about like, you know, 10 percent of Americans, they just couldn't pay for the expense at all. Like four hundred dollars is necessary. They have not even credit cards are available as an option. Um, and as ter- in terms of the consequences of scheduling precarity, well, about a third of workers in retail and service get less than a week's notice of their upcoming week's schedule. And those workers report being unhappy, stressed out, sleeping poorly, and their children, not surprisingly, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to connect the dots. Uh, their children are more likely to misbehave in school, to have tantrums, to report having feelings of guilt and so on. So conservatives complain about the co- consequences of that typically, but they're not willing to look at the kind of material roots. I wanted to get into maybe the reasons the conservative movement hasn't got fully on board with some of your ideas. That's putting it mildly. (laughs) Namely, something you've talked about in interviews is 
this idea of regional capital, or what I think a lot of people would call the petty bourgeois, these sort of small business owners, what role do they play in enforcing a certain orthodoxy about market fundamentalism onto the Republican Party? Well, they play an enormous role. So as I said, uh, the Republican Party, in terms of its voting base, is increasingly is working class. No one no one denies this. It's an empirical fact. Doesn't mean the whole working class, but large chunk of the, chunks of the working class are voting for the GOP. And they're specifically were drawn to the Trump version of the GOP, which whatever you think of it was kind of it harked back to the what I call the Eisenhower Nixon tradition of the Republican Party, which made its peace with the New Deal. Right. Trump said, I'm not going to cut your entitlements. I'm even willing to contemplate a public op- option in healthcare. Remember, in a debate with Ted Cruz, he said, I'm not going to let people die on the streets. Um, and he obviously was quite critical of the kind of neoliberal corporate-led model of globalization. Um, so those people turned to the Republican Party, but they they never really got a working class agenda, even under the Trumpian GOP out of the Republican Party. And I argue that um, that's because although the voting base might be more working class, the power base of the party, and these are two different things, is small and regional capital. It's the petit bourgeoisie, or you might call the small time rich. And these are people who like, the, the typically is like the, the car dealership owner who attends these rubber chicken dinners, toasting the self-made man. Um, and in some ways, they are full of resentment at the market system because they're much more vulnerable to, the, to its vicissitudes, right? They're, it's they who are like, ever ever forced to be competitive whereas they they look at like larger capital which has all this political clout and so forth but their answer their mentality in terms of how to deal with this problem is not to empower the small relative to the big but rather if we could only get rid of these like regulatory structures that get in my way i could compete with big capital and that's their instinct it's a very it's actually a kind of jacksonian instinct it goes far back and of course the republican party's romance with this character of the of the small businessman goes back to Lincoln. Lincoln was a great figure. But in terms of political economy, his statement, his emblematic statement on political economy came during what's known as the speech to the the address to the Wisconsin Agricultural Society, 1859, before he becomes president, where he, he wants to address farmers and specifically the kind of conditions of workers and farmers and the anxieties of the of the market system. And his answer is free labor. And he contrasts what he calls free labor to, of course, the South's model of of unfree labor, of literally owning workers. And especially this is a time when some of the Southern ideologues like George Fitzhugh and James Hammond were openly talking about, hey, we could even own white workers. You know, like what, what's wrong? It's, slavery is a more stable more like organic social order and we take care of our our workers you know again i'm not obviously believe this but it's it's a ridiculous evil theory but that was their response to the conditions that prevailed in the north which was industrialism and if workers got sick or whatever they were thrown by the wayside and their lives were ruined the south said you know we have we have we take care of the work of the of the slave and we could even the most extreme ideologues of the South would even talk about owning white labor, which of course terrified Northern white labor into voting for, for Lincoln. But so as he's addressing these anxieties, he wants to put down the South's obviously monstrous model, but he lifts up as an alternative, the idea of free labor. And this is a very romantic ideal. And his idea is that there is no 
permanent classes and there's no permanent conflict between the classes. That everyone who's a worker is on his way to becoming an entrepreneur so that the farmer today who labors for some other farmer would soon save up enough. He's a penniless beginner in the world, as Lincoln famously said, but he'll save up enough and he'll buy his own land. Or if he's a mechanic, he'll buy the tools eventually and then and then he'll hire someone else and then that person will hire someone else and so all of us are on the way to becoming like small-time entrepreneurs and so there are no permanent classes and no permanent class antagonism this is a lincolnian idea but it's a romantic idea in in a way like lincoln never left the the days of the yeoman republic which was the american republic in its early days when that was true in some ways but by the time he actually was saying these things, already the Industrial Revolution was unfolding and most workers were fated to be workers for their whole lifetime. They're fated to be wage earners. And there was an intense, there was going to be intense class conflict, which indeed, of course, exploded in the later 19th century and all sorts of working class struggles. Um, but the point is that the romance of the Republican Party, which the modern Republican Party was, party was founded by Lincoln, that romance for the small businessman who's sort of a composite figure of labor and capital, who's neither fully a worker nor fully an employer, but sort of elements of both has persisted. And it, I argue it's a kind of ideological illusion used to disguise the fact that, you know, actually most people are wage earners. Most Americans are wage earners. And that leaves them in a position of tremendous vulnerability unless they can act collectively to secure their goods. But the Republican Party, when it celebrates the sort of small businessman, the self-made man at the rubber chicken dinners, is not is is in some ways true to its Lincolnian tradition. Uh, so when like Romney or Paul Ryan keep talking about the self-made man, the job creator, and so on, they're harkening back to an old Republican tradition, which I argue is a tragedy because obviously Lincoln was the great emancipator and was a very visionary politician. Um, but on this count, he's kind of created them, set the mold. One more thing with regards to maybe an obstacle that, that arises with regards mm -hmm. to your sort of promotion of, of social democracy to the right. And I think you've written about this before in the New York Times article, why the red wave didn't materialize. I think that a lot of Republicans may be put off by some people that are considered part of a working class. So in that article I mentioned, you talk about uh, Republicans sort of trashing this union worker who was a, a trans person and a barista. So, I, I mean, how can the right sort of bring the working class together be, or be a working class party when it's going to necessarily be put off by people that are baristas or trans, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, so what you're talking about is the right has this sort of... Um... Uh, again, a romantic, idealized and racialized kind of picture of what a worker is. You know, it's um, typically like a burly teamster or maybe even a, to go back to the previous question, they imagine as the worker a kind of guy who owns his own roofing business and maybe hires others. But the act that's not what the working class in this country actually looks like, right? I mean, uh, it doesn't account for the Filipina woman who works at, in hospitality. It doesn't account for the customer service representative who is an office worker in a way, but is a kind of grindingly exploited one and faces tremendous stresses like any other kind of worker. And so 
you know, how, how does the Republican Party overcome this kind of imaginary bias? I think um, very likely it'll be from electoral defeat, right? So if the Republican Party keeps attracting working class people, including working class people of color, but doesn't deliver a working class agenda, people aren't stupid. They'll, I think, um, culture warring will only take you so far. And so these people will either, you know, re return to the Democratic fold or they'll become apathetic and, you know, give up on even on politics again, as many of them had before the Trump era. Depoliticization. Yeah. Yeah. They would just become uh, whatever. It's all the same crap. OK. Um, and that would be and that would be bad for the Republican Party because it sure as hell is not attracting, you know, suburban moms or, um, you know, kind of urban professional classes. So who is it going to who's going to vote for it? You know, small business people and 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 some farmers aren't enough to win. So it if it doesn't. So my, my, my point is, there's a if people in the Republican Party have an instinct for political survival and, and a desire for actual power, national power as opposed to just becoming a regional rump party and then having the Democrats be the sort of party of national government. If they don't want that, they're going to have to deliver on a real agenda. Um, it's quite possible it'll take, you know, two more bad defeats before they do that. I hope it's OK uh, in our last few minutes, if I can shift gears, I, I know you're here to promote the book. But one thing uh, that, that I've been impressed by uh, with your writings and also some of the uh, articles carried at Compact Magazine is sort of pushing back on this emergent, as I called it earlier, post-Christian, and I would say virulently racist, uh, I think you would call it a Nietzschean or pagan right. What's your concern when it comes to the rise of these figures like Bronze Age pervert and, yeah. you know, this sort of very, you know, social Darwinist and pro-eugenics right? Can you speak to why that's become a concern for you? Well, I mean, it, it's it's sort of self-explanatory. You have um, these mainly anonymous type influencers um, on Twitter. Interestingly, a subset of them are former DSA and Bernie types. I don't know if you're aware of that, but that the, not the post left, right? Yeah. Yes, but not everyone on the post left has become a racist creep. To be clear, clear, but a subset of them have, and then there's of course others who aren't don't come from that background, but. It's interesting to me sociologically why that happens. Um, but that's a different question. But the point is that, um, you know, I mean, as a Christian, first of all, I mean, I find it abhorrent. Uh, I, I believe that human beings are all made in the imago day. And so every time you have a return to the politics of sheer strength of eugenic elites, supposedly eugenic elites, might um, makes right, yeah. Might makes right, and the sort of um, disgust for the weak, disgust for people who are, or and treating that treating their weakness not as potentially much of it, it has to do with social structures, but insisting that it's because they're dysgenic or, and so on. I, that that is a horror to Christianity, and so I'm a, I'm a convert to Catholicism. One of my heroes um, was the Archbishop, Arch, the, sorry, the the Bishop of Munster. Uh, Clemens August Graf von Galen, so Bishop von Galen. Um, he was an he was an aristocrat himself, as his name suggests, right? The von Galen, but he, uh, you know, was as active during World War II, and he learned that the Nazis were beginning to execute 
people with disabilities, uh, you know, with physical, mental disabilities. It was the program was called Action T4, which was the program to eliminate supposedly dysgenic sort of uh, uh, unfortunates born with bad genes and so on, whatever reason were disabled. And so, you know, on the basis of his, this guy is not a liberal or leftist, right? He's an he's a German Catholic aristocratic bishop. But on the basis of this idea of all human beings are made in the image of God, he begins to campaign against this and speaks out and he gives sermons denouncing this eugenic policy. And then later on, the allies reprint his sermons and they they sort of drop them from airplanes all over German cities to try to awaken the horror of other Germans about what the Nazis were doing to, to people with disabilities. So first of all, my uh, 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 like revulsion for this stuff comes from, um, from a Christian place, from this idea of human beings being made in the image of God, the fundamental human dignity. Um, second of all, I just think it's, it's like a, um, it, it, and yet, for all its radicalism, what I find interesting and sort of um, pathetic about it is that it often cashes out as kind of a kind of self-help politics. And this is an old tradition in American society going back to the 19th century. So the market is stressful, right? And everyone is grasping a lot. You're, there's always the possibility that sort of the ground will open up and swallow you because you took one misstep or you had one illness or whatever. And the response of the of this kind of pagan e racist right is 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 ultimately comes down to self improvement. Like you got to lift, you got to eat raw eggs, you got to avoid dysgenic girls, and make sure you mate with high IQ girls. So it's ultimately like not much different from other forms of middle class politics. But w the reason I think we should be taken seriously is that the people who are drawn to it are not contrary to some, I think, liberal and leftist misconceptions. This is not the kind of back backcountry democracy of MAGA, which in its own way is very egalitarian. Um, uh, and, and it has these kind of Jacksonian roots, you know, uh, a lot of Jacksonian, what they call cane break, break Democrats, you know, Southern poor evangelicals who were actually quite anti-slavery before the Civil War. Um, this kind of elements of the Jacksonian FDR co coalition, which you would call backcountry Democrats, have found outlet, I think, in the Trump movement, whatever you think of the Trump movement in general. This is this kind of phenomenon of the pagan neo-racist right is not the MAGA types. You might have other disagreements with MAGA types, but that's not them. It is actually well, I, I can tell, too, because they're not a fan of you. They're not a fan of Patrick Neen. They were very no, no. angry with Michael Lind. I mean. I mean, you you may get them more angry than liberals get them angry. You know? Absolutely. What they are is actually downwardly mobile or stressed urban professionals who feel alienated from their urban milieus and have sort of radicalized themselves into kind of neo-Nietzscheanism and eugenic ideologies. But the reason I think that's dangerous is because precisely they're actually a subs an angry subset of the elite. You know, funny enough, often they're not like representatives of the master race. They're kind of like white ethnics. They're like Armenian, Egyptian, you know, um, uh, uh, Palestinian American. You know, it's, it's weird why they're, despite the fact that they're not exactly, you know, master race types um, by the by, by their own classical categories, they're drawn to this stuff. But if they're, if if they, you know, a, a incipient elite could later be a power elite. And so I I never 
take it lightly when people talk about eugenics, even jokingly, or when they jokingly say TND, total N-word death. That's like one of their slogans. And, you know, you, you never joke with people who who say stuff like that. Because I, I have kind of people who are apologists who they tell me, this is kind of like scrawling a you know an epithet on the locker room wall. It doesn't mean anything. I don't think so. I think you have an angry, incipient, racist elite. You never know what turns of history could 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 alter their position such that they're no longer preaching self-help and lifting and raw egg eating, but rather, you know, are in a position to implement hideous things. So you know, and, and and it's very unfortunate. Sometimes the left doesn't see distinctions about the right. You know, there's a kind of a people like me who are critical of of you know even Enlightenment liberalism, but for because because we have this commitment to fundamental human dignity, the idea that people are made in the imago dei, you know, we also cannot cannot tolerate this kind of racial neo paganism. I know we have to wrap up here, but I want I want to thank you for you and others like Patrick Deneen and Michael Lind for taking that stance against eugenics. I also have to thank you for speaking up on behalf of um, the plight of Armenians uh, when it comes to their oppression by the Azerbaijani regime. I think you're doing really great work. I think that regardless of fundamental disagreements we may have on a number of issues, Tyranny Inc. is a book that really needs to be read. In closing, uh, what do you hope for with the future? I know there's a few interesting things happening like, for instance, Elizabeth Warren and J.D. Vance working together on, you know, a bill to go after the Wall Street banks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that what I look forward to are, are, are concrete pieces of legislation that we can push forward. Um, you know, the New Deal coalition didn't all agree with each other, urban Catholics, um, kind of Protestant uh, farmers uh, and, and a kind of gentry, actually, that that. Uh, supported FDR. That coalition was febrile and 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 fraught in various ways, and yet they built a New Deal order. The neoliberals weren't just conservatives; there were plenty of left or liberal neoliberals. The name, um, so much so that you know, famously, Thatcher was asked, "What's your greatest accomplishment?" And she said, "Tony Blair." So what that means is, whatever comes after this, especially hellish mode of capitalism we call neoliberalism, has to be built in. especially in the American tradition, because we do coalitions and because we do consensus in the center, it has to be built in the center. So my hope is that, you know, yeah, some certain cultural commitments, we will always clash, but um, it is of the essence of the nature of American politics down history that we can set those aside to address discrete things over which we find common ground. So things like the PRO Act, Senator Warren's uh, Stop Wall Street Looting Act, which is addresses um, asset stripping by Wall Street. You know, these could be the basis of a new consensus. And then who knows? I mean, there's a possibility that addressing some of these economic issues could lower the temperature on the cultural issues as well. Doesn't mean they'll go away. You know, we'll always disagree about when life begins and and the right to, of the unborn, et cetera. But some of them, I think, will will be sort of tamped down if people aren't so economically anxious and harried and stressed. I was going to say as well, I think the key way to summarize your book, and you can agree or disagree here, is that you're saying that we need to stop you know, having a system that benefits, I think this is how you put it before, the asset-rich few at the expense of the asset-less many. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a mouthful. 
I know. And I, I when I've been doing interviews, I keep saying I, conf- I confuse the asset less and the asset rich. But anyway, yes, that systematic sort of matrix of of coercion and oppression is at the root of of, of some at least some of our cultural issues. Um, not all of them. So I don't want to become a total crude, like vulgar Marxist, as they used to say. Although there's a good joke about that when I we, we had this um, writer at Compact named George Hoare, and he's, he, he's a, he is a Marxist. So he said, these days, the more vulgar the Marxism, the more likely that it's like actually analytically accurate about the way the world works. But anyway, I'm not. I'm not fully willing to reduce every cultural issue to material issue, to material conditions. But there is a nexus. And I think my side, the right, has too long ignored the, that nexus. And so my mission is to try to just bring it back to that. And thank you again, Sarab Amari. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sarab Amari, and I highly recommend checking out his book, Tyranny, Inc., How Private Power Crushed American Liberty and what to do about it. I'd like to thank friend of the show, Gene Bajalan of the This Is Revolution podcast for helping to make this episode possible. Here's to you, man. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallax views. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Jerlax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.